the creator of all things, the author of scripture himself, is now in the town in which he grew up, in their place of worship, in their synagogue liturgy, reading the word of God to his hometown, relatives, friends, and the like. And what is remarkable about the way the evangelist St. Luke records this is that these are his first public words. Now, he had spoken with the devil in the wilderness when he was tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. But that was a private conversation between him and the devil. And if you remember those words, they were the words of scripture. Jesus said nothing original. He simply quoted scripture. And now in his first words, publicly spoken in Luke's gospel, he again returns to the scriptures, to Isaiah 61. And standing up to read, he reads these words, scriptures that say essentially what we say when we begin our worship, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Jesus begins in the name of the triune God, because he, the second member of the Trinity, son of the Father, sent by the Father to bring about salvation, he, Jesus, is now beginning his work of bringing that salvation about. And when he goes on to read the rest of Isaiah 61, he is talking about why he was sent by the Father with the Spirit to bring about this plan of salvation. He speaks about his anointing because of which he has anointed me. Okay? The Spirit has anointed me to do four things. And these four things are the essence of Jesus' ministry. He is sent to proclaim good news. This is the word that we translate gospel. Notice that it's proclamation, it's announcement, it's a declaration of good news, and that's good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim another word for proclamation, announcement, release, a very important word, release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. To send away in release the broken ones. And finally, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, which you may know as the year of Jubilee, which is the year of release. Now this is the program, so to speak. This is what Jesus is going to do, the work of Jesus. And notice that three out of the four things that he is being sent to do are words of proclamation. That Jesus is present in the world to announce that something is going to happen. And that something that is going to happen is expressed here in this passage from Isaiah by means of the word release. Now that word for release or freedom, you know, or liberation, is the word that we sometimes translate forgiveness. And when he's talking about release, he's talking about the fact that all of humanity is in bondage, is enslaved to something. And those four things are very clearly indicated 
by the ministry that he does right after this sermon in Nazareth. The four things that he brings release from are demon possession, sickness, sin, and death. Right after this sermon in Nazareth, he goes to another city called Capernaum, to another synagogue, and there is a man there who is possessed with an evil demon spirit. And what Jesus does to that spirit, that demon, is he rebukes him. And all of a sudden, that man who is possessed with this demon is freed from that demon. He is free. That demon no longer inhabits his body. Now notice that this is a physical freedom. This man was in bondage to a demon, and now he is free from that demon. And then in the very next passage, Jesus goes into Peter's mother-in-law's house, and she is possessed not with a demon, but with a fever, with a sickness. Jesus does the same thing to that sickness that he did to the demon. He rebukes the sickness, the fever, and it says it left her, which is this word here for release. It released her, and she was made whole. She was healed from this bodily sickness. And then in the very next chapter, Jesus is traveling along, and he comes to the house of a paralytic. And you probably remember this story very well, because they had to remove the tiles on the roof so they could let the paralytic down. Now here is a man who is physically in bondage. He is paralyzed. His body is doubled over. And yet Jesus notices that not only is he physically in bondage, enslaved, but he is also enslaved to sin. He gets into a discussion with the religious leaders about forgiving this man's sin. And of course, when he starts talking about forgiving sin, releasing sin, they think he is speaking blasphemy. But Jesus says very clearly to them, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Therefore, I say to you, is it easier to make this man well or to forgive his sins? And in order to show you that I, the creator of all things, have the power not only to heal him, but to forgive his sins, what does Jesus do? He heals him of his bodily paralysis and forgives him his sins because Jesus does not make a distinction between being physically bound or spiritually bound. For Jesus, it's one and the same thing. He has a very holistic view of looking at the human being, body and soul together. Now, of course, the ultimate bondage is death, where we are completely, totally at the end of what sin does to us. This is a manifestation of what the fallenness of the creation really brings about in our lives. And as you know, in chapter 7 of Luke's Gospel, he raises the widow's son at Nain. And in chapter 8, he raises his Jairus' daughter from the dead. Demon possession, sickness, sin, and death. These are forms of bondage in which when Jesus comes, he sets people free from these things. Now, when he announces good news and release, he's announcing in them to people who are in bondage, the poor, the captives, the blind, the broken ones, 
those who are enslaved in prison or in debt in which they are freed in the year of Jubilee. And when Jesus does this, he is performing miracles. That's what these things are. They are miracles. Now, in our day and age, many people doubt that there are miracles anymore. And they certainly, in many ways, doubt that these miracles of Jesus really happened. But miracles are important because what miracles do, especially the miracles of Jesus, is they tell us very clearly that he is the Son of God and that he, the Son of God, is present in his creation, bringing about the new creation. Now notice what miracles do. Miracles testify to the presence of God in his creation. When he healed Jairus' daughter here by raising her from the dead, the ultimate healing, in the context of that section, there is a woman who has been hemorrhaging with blood for many years. And she comes to Jesus when he's in a crowd of thousands of people surrounded by his disciples. And he says to his disciples, somebody touched me. Remember how the disciples respond? They kind of laugh at him. Lord, of course somebody touched you. There, there, was, there were all these people. They must have touched you. But Jesus says to them, no, I felt the power come out of me. What we need to do here is think of Jesus as the, the, the throbbing presence of God's recreating activity. I like to picture it this way. This journey that Jesus makes from heaven back to heaven. In Luke's gospel, they call it an exodus, a departure how Jesus comes into this world and then departs from this world, or his being taken up, his being lifted up out of this world. This journey from heaven back to heaven is the journey of Jesus, the one who comes to bring about this new creation. And what you really have is the creator, Jesus, coming from heaven and breaking into our world, invading it, because in order for this world that is under the, the bondage of sin, death, and the devil, what this world needs is an invasion from the outside, from God himself, to make it whole again. There are two ways in which the Christian participates in the journey that Jesus makes from heaven back to heaven. In holy baptism, we first make this journey with Jesus. St. Paul says in Romans 6 that we die with Christ, we are buried with Christ in baptism, and we rise with him to this life that never ends. It is here that we go with Jesus into a journey that we ourselves cannot go through, a journey that only he can go through. And when Jesus comes into our world as one who is God and now man, we see what our true humanity looks like. We enter into him in baptism. That's what it means to be in Christ, to put on Christ, to put on his sinlessness, his holiness, his righteousness.
but we also participate in this journey during the church year, during the celebration of Holy Week where we go with him from the Passover to Golgotha to the tomb and to the tomb that is empty on Easter morning. In fact, the entire season of Lent is our journey with him to this wonderful three days where he brings about the Lord's salvation. And when we go on that journey yearly, we go to remember not only his journey, but his journey in us when we were baptized into his suffering, death, and resurrection. And so Jesus, and here I'm reciting from the, from the Nicene Creed, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven. The creator becomes a creature. He was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. He became one of us. During the time from his birth to his crucifixion is when he performed these miracles of release to show us a foretaste of the ultimate release he was going to bring about. And that ultimate release came in his death when all the bondage of demon possession, sickness, sin, and death is laid upon him at the cross. And it is there that the creation itself begins to become unglued as it goes through this tremendous change where there are earthquakes and this unearthly darkness because of the darkness of our sin and all the bondage of creation being laid upon him. And was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered, and on the seventh day, the Sabbath, he was buried, taking his Sabbath rest in the tomb. Why can Jesus rest on the Sabbath? Because when he dies, bearing the bondage of all of the world's fallenness upon him, he can say, it is finished. The work of the new creation has been completed. It's over. God is now going to bring in the new creation. And after his Sabbath rest in the tomb, on the third day, he rises from the dead. And then 40 days later, he ascends back to heaven. On the third day, he rose again, according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. Jesus' journey from heaven down into the very belly of the earth where he is buried and then back up to heaven. This is how Jesus brings about our salvation. And this is what he was talking about here in the Sermon in Nazareth, that he was present in the world to bring about not just release for incidental little isolated incidences of bondage, but to bring about release of the whole creation. Now, why am I telling you this in the context of a discussion of the liturgy of the church? Well, very simply this. Here in the Sermon of Nazareth, he is talking about proclamation, which is teaching, announcing something. And when Jesus teaches, it happens. Your sins are forgiven. It's a reality. Take up your bed and walk. It happens. And when he says it is finished, it is finished. 
But he not only says it, he demonstrates it in real ways. By healing the sick, by raising the dead, by casting out demons, by actually suffering and dying as the Son of God. Now those two things, teaching and miracles, are the way in which Jesus shows us that he is here for us so that he might bring in this new creation. And when we talk about teaching and miracles in the time of our Lord, we want to ask the question, well, where is that teaching today? And where are those miracles today? And the answer is very simply here, in a place like this, in the liturgy of the church, where Jesus is present here teaching us in his word and where he is present giving us the miracle of his presence in baptism and the Lord's Supper. In many of the old Lutheran churches, behind the altar, there is what is called a rarados. It is a place where they would put statues of Jesus or perhaps some of the apostles over the altar to show the heavenly nature of the worship of the people of God. In many of those churches, there will be a statue of Jesus who there standing over the altar is reaching his hands out over the church like this. What Jesus is saying in that expression there of open arms over the altar is saying simply this, that he is present among his people in word and in sacrament. That this is how he has bound himself to be present among us. And that here in these two things, we have the miracles of the new era of salvation. Because miracles simply testify to the presence of God in his creation, bringing about the new creation. When Jesus was in a discussion with the religious leaders about the temple, he said something to them that startled them. He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And they murmured to one another, it took us 46 years to build this temple. How is he going to raise it up in three days? And the evangelist St. John, who records this in his second chapter, says to those who are reading these words, he was speaking about his own body. We speak about a place like this church as the new temple, because this is where we find the Lord's body. The Lord's body of the people of God gathered here as Paul calls them, the body of Christ. And the Lord's body, the Lord's flesh, as he comes to us in his word and in his holy meal. This is the new temple. This is the kingdom of God. This is the new creation. This is the place of his holiness. This is where we confront God and he confronts us. 
with his saving gifts. That's all right. Uh, Lent, uh, Lent, was wa- Lent was made for the man, not man for Lent. Just like the whole Sabbath thing, you know, right? Right? So, all right. Wonderful, wonderful. Um, I have no idea what I just did. There we go. All right. Turn off. Switch off. There. All right. <coughs> If anybody needs a handout, um, they're back there. Okay. So, in Luke chapter fourteen, or Luke chapter four, verses fourteen and, and following, how does Jesus begin his ministry, uh, his public ministry? Yeah, he reads scripture and then teaches. Um, his, his practice was what? What was his custom? On the Sabbath day, he would? He would go to the synagogue, right? That was his, as, his, as was his custom, is how St. Luke writes it. And Jesus has a number of customary things that he does in Luke's gospel. One of those is going to Sabbath, uh, synagogue on the Sabbath which in our day would be basically what? What does that teach us about what our habits should be, or our customs should be? Go to church. If it was good enough for Jesus, it's probably good enough for us. That's a good one. Um, Some other habits that Jesus had was he he went to Jerusalem for the Passover, as was his custom. He would go to Jerusalem for the Passover. And so um, when he went there in his last year of life, for the last Passover, it was not a big surprise for his disciples. Yeah, we come around this time, we, we go to Passover. That's just what we do. Some other patterns and, and habits that Jesus had, customs that he had, were um, um, prayer. Um, he would go off on his own to pray sometimes, as was his custom, St. Luke says. So these are all good customs, the good habits that, that Jesus had. Um, in the season of Lent, we're, we're accustomed to giving things up, right? We, we sort of... Maybe it's a, it's a New Year's uh, resolution reboot, <laughs> right? Um, that kind of a thing. Well, take a different angle on it and pick up a new habit, uh, one that's beneficial, you know, with either the devotions that we have or, or maybe it's enough to say, you know, make it a habit to come Wednesday night for services or Wednesday afternoon if that's convenient for you, um, to, to add something for six or seven weeks um, and see what, see what comes of it. I'll say that with a bit of a warning, though. At first, it can be a little dangerous to try to do too much, as much as it is dangerous to do too little. 
you know, you, you sort of put that in the sense of like New Year's resolutions, right? You say, okay, I'm gonna, I wanna, I wanna lose some weight this year. My New Year's resolution is I'm gonna hit the gym every day for 30 minutes. So you're going from like zero to, you know, 100 miles an hour on that, and you miss a day, maybe it's two days, maybe you get sick, or when your kids get sick, and all of a sudden now you're three days behind, and now when you think of your resolution, all of a sudden you start to feel overwhelmed and guilty. You look at something like, okay, you know what? I, I, need to, I need to get back into studying God's Word and focusing on that. I'm going to read one chapter of the Bible every day. Well, the same thing happens. You know, something, you know, you miss a day or something like that. Okay, I just read two chapters the next day. You know, before you know it, you're like four or five chapters behind, behind from where you wanted to be. And all of a sudden now, when your Bible's sitting on your table, it's not something that's inviting and comforting to you, but all of a sudden it feels overwhelming and you feel guilt. Isn't that crazy how Satan tempts us and just takes even something like our desire to read God's word and twists it on us and says, you know, now you can feel guilty about reading God's word. Ha ha ha. So, so at first it's, it's almost as dangerous to do too much as it is to do too little. And that's why when I was, uh, like with the Advent devotions, or the Lenten devotions, they started on Ash Wednesday. If you pick yours up today, don't feel like you have to catch up. Just read today's. If you have the portals of prayer and, and you leave those in your Bible and, and you miss a day or two, don't feel like you have to catch up. Read today's because that is a blessing to you and that, that, that strengthens your faith and it gives you comfort. And what happened yesterday, in, in God all things are forgiven. You know, remember how, all right, Lord, remember how yesterday I didn't read your word? No, I forgave you for that. I don't remember that. I, I, that's as far as the east is from the west now. I don't remember it. Why should you? If God doesn't remember it, why should we? So, so just don't worry about trying to do, trying to change your whole life and you know overnight. We didn't we didn't get into our, to our habits and our patterns in one event. It takes time. So, read something today, and if you miss tomorrow, read something the next time you do, you get a chance. You know. Say a little prayer. If you're driving along, say, oh, I didn't, I didn't do my prayers today. I got to do twice as many, you know, when I get home or something. Just pray right there. You know, don't, presence and conversation with God is not something that is, that is guilt-inducing, but rather comforting, you know. When you, see, when, you, when you see someone you love and you actually get to spend time with them, you don't dwell so much on how little, how, how little it has been in the past, but how joyful it is to be present now. So just keep that in mind as, as you're looking at your Lenten observances and things. And also remember that giving up something for Lent and, and, or sort of good outward training sort of things, you know, sort of nice to, to do. And if you, if you fail at it, you know, if you gave up something, chocolate, salt, I don't know what, you know, and, and you, you fail at it, you know what? Start over. Pick it up. Just say, all right, it's a new day. And uh, because it's not, you know, I gave up, you know, I give up chocolate for Lent. I ate a piece of chocolate. Did I sin? Chocolate's not forbidden. <laughs> In fact, it's a good gift of God. <laughs> um, but just, you know, 
maybe that just lets you be a little bit easier on yourself, ha have a little less guilt involved. You know, Lent isn't about guilt. It's about repentance, but it's not about guilt. Jesus takes away guilt. So just remember those things. So, all right. Um, what are the two positions of Jesus in verse 20? Uh, Luke chapter 14, uh, Luke chapter 4, verse 20. Anybody have that open? Yes. Read it for me. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. Okay, so first, while he was reading the scriptures, he was standing, and then he went and sat down, and everybody was staring at him. Now, it wasn't like he sat down, it wasn't like he did his reading, and then he went and you know, sat down, and everybody's like, 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 you're looking at me now, like, you're looking over here, like, is he going to do something, or what's he doing? He would have sat down here, in the teaching place, in the teaching position. For them, the rabbis taught sitting down. Um, you know, that's why, when, like, on the Sermon on the Mount, he called his disciples to them, to himself, up on the hillside, and he sat down, opened his mouth, and taught them, saying, you know, that's the, that's the position he was in. He was taking a, a preaching, a proclamation, a teaching position. Um, all right, so Jesus begins with the reading from Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to thus and so. What three names does he basically invoke at the beginning of that reading, by using that reading? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord, Yahweh, is upon me. The, the, the Spirit of the Father is upon the Son. So, how, do we, how does that translate to our worship today? We begin, the, our, our invocation is, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you ever notice that that's not a complete sentence? I come out, and the first thing I say, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, it's not, a, it's not a statement, it's an invocation. It's not a complete sentence, it's a declaration. What we are about to do, we do, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It, it, it sort of declares over all that is going to be happening. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. And then we start having the divine conversation. That sometimes gets, gets um, it's tempting to want to add words to it to make it sound like a complete sentence. We make our beginning in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But you know, that's more of a, that's, that's descriptive versus declarative. Because remember, when Jesus declares something, when he proclaims something, it happens. And so when his servants come out and we say, we're going to do the worship thing now, and the way we're going to start is, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it declares it to be. The same thing happens at the end of the service. It's not a, with the benediction. It's not a, um, I hope God's blessings upon you, or something like that but the Lord bless you and keep you. Boom. 
The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. Boom. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen, amen, amen. It's not about hoping or wishing or could it possibly be a reality somehow, but it's the words of God that create the reality spoken to you. The power is in his word. So you can't get too picky about grammar in the liturgy because it's, you know, they're declarative statements versus descriptive. Yeah. Quick question. Hmm? Yeah. It actually has to do more with uh, popular use of the words. Um, in, the, in, in the 1800s, late 1800s, early 1900s, when a lot of that was being translated from Latin into English and, and we were bringing that over into, into our worship um, liturgies and things, to talk about spiritualism or to talk about the spirit world was in that time frame, that word spirit meant ghosts and apparitions and spooky things. The spirit things were, it brought the connotation of fear and the supernatural. Whereas ghost was not, did not bring that connotation with it. It did not have that baggage of spooky. In our current day and age, however, for whatever reason, because language just evolves, <laughs> um, the, the, the significance of those words has actually flip-flopped. Now we talk about ghosts, we think of, you know, Casper and white sheets and, you know, spirits and the dead and all these kinds of things. So in order to, to, to not bring the spooky connotations along with it, in one t at one time frame they used the word that didn't bring that baggage with it, ghost. And now in this day and age, we do well to go ahead and say, you know what? Our language has changed and we want to make sure we're communicating clearly that the holy that, that the third person of the Trinity is not where you know, you know, blinky, winky, dinky, or or um, oh, what's the fourth one? Pac-Man. <laughs> you know, he's not one of those guys running around. You know? So we use the word spirit because it doesn't carry that baggage of spooky Halloween style. That's it. Yep. Yeah. It, you know, and honestly, old habits die hard. You do, you do nothing wrong if it, if it just by memory, there it goes out. So yeah, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. And, and so when, you know, when, whenever I'd visit a church or when I'd be around doing something and, and their liturgy used ghost, I would say ghost, I would try to. And when, and when I would say somewhere that said spirit, I would say spirit just because we'll do what we do in that particular context what they're familiar with. So, yeah, yeah, good question, good question. All right, so the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. So what were the four reasons that Jesus said the Spirit of the Lord was upon him? To do what four things? To proclaim the good news, the word gospel. To heal. To proclaim, does somebody have that, Isaiah? Or uh, the, the Luke chapter 4, you still have that open? Can you read that section, Beth? Luke chapter 4, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to... Which verse is it? Oh, 
All right, so first is preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. Proclaim freedom. And recovery of sight for the blind. Okay, to, to heal, the, to, to recovery of sight of the blind, okay. And to release the oppressed. To release the oppressed, okay. Um, and then to, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So it's sight to the blind and uh, freedom for the oppressed is, is, the, is the one thing. Jesus doesn't distinguish between those two things. And then proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee in the Old Testament was the year um, every seven years, everything got reset. If you owed somebody money every seven years, reset. If you were uh, an indentured servant to somebody every seven years, reset, reset, reset. And um, every seventh, seventh year, Every 49 years was the great jubilee when, when land and everything else would actually get returned back to ancestral holdings and things like that. So, it w which demonstrated that, you know, you, you, whose land was it? It was God's. Who's did you who did you belong to? To that person? No, you belong to God. That's what the year of jubilee was, was all about. So what, what do three of those four items that Jesus talks about deal with? Proclamation. Proclamation. The, the declaring of, of a new reality. The Spirit of the Lord is upon Jesus to proclaim, to preach. It's all kind of summed up there under the, the good news, to bring the gospel. Does this still happen today? That, that's a good question. The, the question is about uh, the, um, how is this different from the 12-year-old Jesus? There you're talking about um, uh, the, the preachers, the, the teachers of the law, and it might have been even the Sanhedrin, um, sort of giving examination to a 12-year-old boy, and they were amazed at his answers. So sort of the, the bar mitzvah, you know, um, confirmation questioning kind of thing versus now that he's 30, at the year 30, he can be a rabbi now. So, yeah, it's another interesting thing for Luke to, to, to denote the particular ages of Jesus. You know, when he was eight days old, circumcised, um, uh, he, was, he was brought to the temple for purification 40 days, and then it was um, 12 years old, he's in the temple, and 30 years, now he's a rabbi. These are all the different age markers for, um, uh, f that are significant for cultural things at that point. They did actually. They would have been. In, you would have been. You would have been under the, the tutelage of another rabbi for a period of time. We never hear that about who Jesus was. And, and I think that was what was so amazing about his proclamation, how they said, you know, a new teaching with authority. He never lays claim to who his rabbi was because he, is, he's, he doesn't need someone to teach him the, the law and the prophets. He, he is the law and the prophets. He's the embodiment of it. And so there's never a claim to, to alternative authority. He, he proclaims from his own authority in that. So, yeah. 
Um, Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul, talks about being a student of Gamaliel, who was uh, a great rabbi, and so he kind of gives his rabbi credentials, Paul does, by saying, you know, this was my teacher, Gamaliel. So, all right. Where in the liturgy does Jesus continue to carry out his work of proclamation and teaching? Well, where do we hear his word? In the reading of scripture, and then also in the, in the sermon, as God's word is then also proclaimed and taught. Um, and as long as I stick to the script, you know, as long as I preach things consistent with God's word, my, my words, the, the sermon doesn't have authority because it came from me. It has authority because it proclaims the realities of Scripture. The things, the things that I preach and teach to you aren't true because I've said them. They're true because they are what's already in Scripture. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't, it, it doesn't go the other way. It, 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 the authority first is in, is in God's Word. And when I, if I'm if I'm bringing something to the game that, that's my own stuff, you know, you got the, the hearers owe their pastors to judge their shepherds and say, why don't, why don't you just preach as God's word <laughs> instead of trying to make things up as you go along. In my confirmation, that's what my pastor told us. He said, don't listen to me because I'm the pastor and I'm saying so. Go back and see it for yourself in the Bible. Test, test the spirits. The, um, Paul tells the, uh, Timothy, test the spirits. Wait against scripture. I won't be offended. All right, Jesus came to release the oppressed. So there's the proclamation and then there's the releasing. What was the word that he said is that release today? It's forgiveness. It's forgiveness. You, you come to church and you hear me preach another sermon about forgiveness. <laughs> it's like... What else do I have to say, you know? Yeah, exactly. That's, that's release. And does Jesus, Jesus release that he proclaims, how does he demonstrate that he is releasing the effects of sin? Through the miracles. That's right. That's right. He, um, what are some of the miracles that he does that proclaim that release from, the effect, from sin and the effects of sin? He heals diseases. He heals leprosy. He, uh, 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 Peter's mother-in-law had a fever, and he, he rebukes the fever. That's the word that it's used there. He rebukes it. It's like, bad fever. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's a master over a pet. You know, he rebukes it. Bad fever. And it leaves. You know, when, when Jesus rebukes, he uses the same word to rebuke the demons. And they run, you know, fork to tail, tucked between their legs, and they go running. So that's, that's another way, that, that's another miracle that he proclaims is he casts out demons. demons. He sends the, the forces of Satan reeling, um, running scared. And how else? Releases us from sin. It, one of the miracles that he does is he raises people from the dead. He, he raises Jairus' daughter um, and, and Lazarus, um, the, the widow's son at Nain. That's one of my favorite stories. Oh, it's so beautiful. You just sort of 
can you imagine being at a funeral and, 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 and you, you think everything is hopeless and then, oh, it's just, that's a very emotional, uh, emotional miracle. And, um, and, and, and all the miracles do, they, they, the, these physical miracles demonstrate what? The power of Jesus, the presence of God, where? In his, I heard it, in his creation. Jesus is present in his creation. He's really here. He's not, you know, uh, uh, he's not a ghost. <laughs> you know, he's not an apparition, but he's real. When he's going through that crowd, somebody touches him. And, feel, and he feels the power go out of him, which is a really interesting phrase. He feels the power go out of him. It's like, you know. <laughs> you know. Um, and their disciples are all like, yeah, everybody's touching you. What's the, what's the deal? That'll be, uh, you know, what was the difference between her touching and everybody else's touching? I think because she says, if she had the faith, if I could just touch her. Bang. That's it. Faith is the difference. We touch Jesus all the time. And, and his power comes to us, his proclamation, his release comes to us by the means of grace we receive through faith. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's interesting. Just touching the robe of Jesus, um, you know, coming into the presence of God brings you his reality. It's an interesting, it's an interesting thing. Yeah. People, people tried to do that later with Paul. They wanted to touch his robe or um, Peter's shadow. They wanted, they wanted Peter's shadow to fall over them as he walked along so that it could heal him, heal them. His shadow. Now, a shadow isn't even a thing. It's the absence of a thing. It's a, it's a reflection of the light. You know, it's an absence of the light. You know, it's, it's, just, it's very interesting. All right. Um, I'm out of time. So, um, are the teachings and miracles of Jesus still continuing today? Where? Okay. We're in forgiveness, right? We receive the word and sacraments, and they testify to the presence of Jesus among his people, in his creation. He is truly here. And how is the local church today a new temple? The temple signified what? The, the presence of God, and Jesus was moving that location of the presence from people thinking about it in the building to it being in his, in his body. And so today the church is the new temple because it's, it's, we are the body of Christ, and this is where he is present in his word, in his sacraments, in the giving of those gifts. I looked at the statue behind our altar. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I made, a, I made a note about the statue thing. There it is. You know, it's like, here I am. Word and sacrament, I'm giving. And, and God doesn't, God's not stingy. When he gives, he gives with both hands. Twice as much, right? Jim, last word. The symbolism is he's giving, but he's also, it's like welcoming. Absolutely. You're giving and you're receiving. Come unto me. Absolutely. Absolutely. Fantastic. Well, God's blessings to all of you. Again, these will be um, 
Um, our discussion and the video and the, and the worksheet and things will be up on the website in a day or so. And uh, so I hope that's uh, useful to some of you. And uh, if there's ever anything you need, let me know.